0: A few weeks ago, I told my audience about a new opportunity and you guys seemed to love it. They sent me the numbers, hundreds of signups and thousands of dollars invested because I talked about how ordinary folks can invest like the billionaires of the world. How? By investing in multi-million dollar artworks on masterworks. This fintech platform has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fox Business, Bloomberg, and more. Masterworks isn't just impressive, their track record is too. Because since 2017, Masterworks has successfully offered and sold three paintings, with each realizing a net annualized gain above 30% per work. Although legally, I have to add, past performance is not indicative of future results. But still, 30% is incredible. If you want to join over 400,000 members, getting started is as easy as 1, 2, 3. You can get priority access at masterworks.io slash sadtruth. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. That's masterworks.io slash sadtruth. Okay, guys, this is a long overdue uh, meeting of uh, one extremely gorgeous guy, the other guy named Michael.
1: Uh, (laughs) Hey, I'm a model. I'm an
0: underwear model. Is that that's what I heard because somebody made reference to that but I didn't can you tell us what that is because I didn't follow the reference if you go to Sheathunderwear.com and use promo code malice 20
1: you get 20% off and if you go to my Instagram I was an underwear model for them
0: now is that because you possess what the Lebanese already score very highly on which is you're very well endowed is that what's going on here.
1: Oh, no. I'm hung like a thimble. But the thing is, I got in such good shape, I had my cum gutters come in. So I thought, okay, I'm underwear model ready. And the camera apparently agreed.
0: Well, 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 well. I'm jealous. Uh, Okay, so we met last week. You were kind enough to uh, come and meet me for a quick coffee. I think it was about a one-hour meeting. You got to meet... uh, Arguably, my greatest accomplishment in life, which is to convince my gorgeous wife to actually marry a schmuck like me.
1: Oh, by the way, just for all the listeners, she really is gorgeous. (laughs) So, you know, everyone thinks their wife's gorgeous and then this like hobbit crawls on and you're like, oh, she's lovely. I'm like, she's really hot to the point where I'm like, okay, this evolutionary psychologist (laughs) knows all the buttons to press.
0: Exactly.
1: That's applied science.
0: Exactly. I apply my wisdom. Uh, to my personal pursuits. Uh, thank you. You're very kind. Uh, I want to tell the audience that, in a sense, I'm not speaking today to Michael Malice, but I'm speaking to my 10 year older brother, David Saad, because I actually showed you a photo of him. And I think you confirmed that you clearly see the resemblance, correct?
1: Yes, sir. And it's weird because you're um, obviously Sephardic. I'm Ashkenazi. Your family's from the Middle East. My family's from the Soviet Union. So we we can't even really be close relatives, you know, uh, but it, the resemblance is there.
0: It's unbelievable. Uh, I mean, he he's in a sense a an outlier in that. Uh, I mean, I'm probably the darkest in the family, and he would be... You know, grossly the lightest. He's actually in in, in Arabic, you say abras or ginger, as, as we discussed. So, you know, he's got freckles, he's kind of reddish hair. So he really has your tint. But which shows basically that if we go back far enough in time, there's probably some genetic linkage there by virtue of us being the evil juice, correct?
1: Have you done 23andMe?
0: I've never done it because I don't want to find out that somehow I have a Swedish ancestor because my whole victimology poker, my whole identity would be shattered. But I'm almost certain that I hail from King David. But I haven't done it. Have you? I did. And there were no
1: surprises. Uh, There was one thing where it said like 0.2% of the DNA is like indeterminate. So I, I photoshopped it to say cephalopod. And I put that up on Facebook, and people are like, did it really say 0.2% cephalopod? I'm like, yes, of course. Uh,
0: What I would like to do if I do uh, 23andMe is to find out that I'm part indigenous so that I can somehow recoup all of the fucking taxes that were stolen from my book royalties. Do you think I can be part Iroquois or Mohawk? Is it possible?
1: Well, I mean, then you'd be a senator, right? (laughs) She is the presidential candidate.
0: Exactly. She is the first tenured professor of color at uh, Harvard. All right. Let's get down to the magic of Austin. I've got, oh, actually, before we do Austin, I just found this out about your overheard in New York. Forgive me for only finding out about this now.
1: That was a long time
0: ago, and I can't really get into it. Oh, you, can I just say something that I did with my sure, daughter? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I was walking... Uh, my whole family, uh, we were walking downtown on Sunday. And as, uh, you know, uh, as is the, the case in New York, there are these, you know, hot spots where everybody's walking. It's super crowded. And as I was walking, I would catch snippets of what people were saying. So I told my daughter, you know what would be a cool game for us to play? Imagine if we could tape let's say one sentence from each person so that then we have a montage then you have to create a story using only the words that were picked up in those drive-by conversations and then I find out that you sort of had something similar. Uh, yeah, you want 20 st-
1: years ago boomer a great, a great idea this would have been a great idea in 2003.
0: <laughs> hey listen you're talking about a uh, great idea from 2003 I was, I was just recently on Joe Rogan, and I was telling him about that my latest book that I'm working on deals with, the, you know, how to live the good life, and so I got into the ancient Greeks, and every time I would be excited about some incredible new insights that I had independently come up, you know, come up with, I find out that Epictetus had said this 2,300 years ago, so that's a really uh, good way to kind of keep you grounded and humble.
1: Or great minds think alike, so maybe it's the other way.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. You're very kind. Uh, All right. I want to talk about the magic of Austin. We quickly touched on this during our chat uh, when we met uh, over coffee, and you recently moved there. I just put out a clip on my YouTube channel where I was kind of analogizing or comparing you know, uh, Austin to Florence, or as you and I mentioned, the Vienna Circle. Tell us about Austin. How has your move been there? How has the city been going? Give us the whole story.
1: Well, for people who don't know, I, I was a lifelong New Yorker. My family moved to Brooklyn when I was one and a half or two. Uh, the only time I didn't live in New York was when I was in college. Uh, and then I did a semester in Washington, D.C. as an intern. Um, and so I don't even know how to drive. It's actually pretty funny because my nephew, who's four, he just learned how to ride a bike, which I also don't know how to do. So I, I'm basically one step away from being in a wheelchair. Uh, <laughs> like I, I, I'm lucky I can walk. Um, so moving from... Brooklyn, being such a um, uh, New Yorker, well, you froze on me. Are you? Am I oh, okay? Uh, I okay can, we're back. we back. Okay, okay, back, back. Uh, moving from Brooklyn would have is a it was a huge deal for me. I mean, I knew the city intimately. Uh, again, not driving is a, is a big issue in every other party, probably city in, in America. Um, but seeing what was done to New York made it completely um, unconscionable. I'm glad I got out when I did because that guy who shot up that subway station, that was my subway station for uh, since 2006. Uh, It was half a block away. So if you look at the photos, the yellow police tape is at my old apartment door. So that, I mean, when people, it it was really funny because, uh, I had tweeted out something. I moved in August of 2021 and I tweeted out something in March or May and I had said, you know, I just saw two people in the course of one week. Smoking on the train smoking cigarettes. I go, you know, New York's not just going down It's it's collapsing and people are making fun of me. Oh, you're an addict just get over it. It's just cigarettes And I'm like, no, 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 no I remember what it was like when I was a kid because one day it's cigarettes the next day there's this and then it becomes violence and very quickly that of course ended up coming true I wish I was wrong you know I wish I was just being you know clutching my pearls being some Puritan but that's how these things end up happening when people see they get away with one thing they keep pushing the envelope that's just perfectly logical and organic so I am absolutely thrilled about being here though I still haven't learned how to drive but what what you were referring to uh, specifically what I'm excited about is that Austin is becoming a great cultural hub. I didn't realize those last two years it's it was a function of the lockdowns, but also the function of people fleeing New York, how isolated it got. And New York tends to be an isolating city in general, but there was always things to do, people to meet. That decreasingly was the case. And here in Austin it's just been like, you know, it's like I, I, I'm not saying this in a pejorative way, but it's been like one guest star after another. Like I had um breakfast with you Uh, the next day Kennedy uh, a good friend of mine from Fox Business she was in town this weekend I'm going to SpaceX with uh, with Tim Pool so like every week someone is coming through and the thing is the people who are coming through are all very collegial and and kind of uh, you know excited to talk to you so there is this kind of sense of we're making something fun uh, Happened here. And it's it was very, like the, I think it was Joe and I'm sure you would agree who basically sent out like a homing beacon You know or like the bat signal like listen if you're a creative person who's making it happen in some way Come here. We'd love to have you and what about Austin is special is there's a, there's a big Venn diagram You know like Detroit would be like Motor City or maybe you know Hollywood is always for the movies But here you've got the crypto people and then you've got these like tr- the transhumanist people and then you've got like the red pilled people. There's a big comedy scene. Austin is known very much for its music scene, something I'm not particularly interested in because uh, I'm an old man. I don't need to go outside to see the mu- <laughs> see music. But you know, so so many people are, are coming through. It's just been really, really uh, a wonderful thing, and I, I'm glad that it's an unmitigated good because if I had if it I'd been on the fence, you know I hold a big trigger
0: right uh well i mean you also mentioned uh, when you were saying that all the people passing through you 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 very kindly invited me to get together and apparently it's now part of a routine that you have a gertrude stein type intellectual salon conversations unfortunately given the ridiculous schedule i had i couldn't make it but i am holding you accountable to invite me the next time on town uh tell us about that because i mean before before you answer that question you know one of the things that i often rue about academia is that while many people are supposedly professional intellectuals i mean they're professors they actually score in my view very low on intellectualism right yes. because they you know they know their little narrow areas very very well and they could you know talk you to death about the the narrow you know set of studies that they've been doing in the past 30 years but take them slightly out of that lane and they become babbling imbeciles who know nothing right whereas intellectualism is a form of intellectual curiosity i want to sit with people who are artists i want to sit, and i've always fantasized i've always told my wife uh that i've i've always wanted to have a you know like a friday night shabbat dinner where you invite the great photographer and the painter and of course the philosopher and the academic so that my children grow up hearing stories of great people i mean i guess you've created my fantasy get-together
1: yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I, I think the right um, gets wrong, and I think you'd agree, is that there is a big sense of uh, cultural lack of curiosity and also this delusion that the arts are somehow a democratic Idea or belong to the left now you know this I'm sure from evolutionary psychology that leftism tends to be much more receptive and interested in innovation and new ideas definitionally uh, people on the right or, or conservatives I'm not using this term synonymously tend to like what they know uh, I think having a passport in America correlates very well to how you vote so things like this and as a result of this there's huge areas of interest that I think most people on the right would tend to just dismiss or just just congenitally not be interested in, you know, it's not it's not my kind of thing, which is a shame because there's and one of those things is like modern art. You know, I think they think uh, you could hear how they talk that everything's Jackson Pollock uh, (laughs) and, and everything's illegitimate. And Jackson Pollock is not illegitimate. Jackson Pollock was responding. To something previous to him, modern art. You know, if you look at modern art, it's basically like walking into. A, if if you have this perspective, it's like walking to a comedy club, hearing only the punchlines, and being like, "This is stupid." You're like, "Yes, it is stupid," but you're not understanding right. what it is that you are perceiving in the conversation. But specifically, Gertrude Stein. So Gertrude Stein and her brother Leo Stein, they were uh, expats from San Francisco. They moved to the Left Bank of Paris uh, in the early 1900s, and they became two of the earliest collectors of modern art Uh, and they basically had this little room uh, attached to their apartment uh, in Paris where they just started putting up all the pictures she used it for her writing he used it for his painting Uh, they had a falling out Gertrude moved in her girlfriend life partner Alice B Toklas and you know the walls became covered with all these pictures Um, most prominently was this famous Picasso drawing of her and and the, the anecdote was it doesn't look like her and Picasso goes, don't worry, it will, uh, which is a great comment, which can be read many ways, but most obviously that the image of someone becomes more known than the person themselves. A great example of this is Neil Armstrong. If I ask people, what does Neil Armstrong look like? Most people don't know what his face looks like, right. but you know, it's the guy in the moon, right? right. So the image is more important than the actual face. But what she did is, because people want to come by and see all these pictures, this is before television or even radio, there's nothing to do. Uh, so she's like, all right, stop bothering me. Uh, So Saturday nights, you know, she'd have these little get togethers and Hemingway would be there and and Fitzgerald and Picasso and and Matisse and all the greats. Um, And she later wrote a book about it, which apparently was full of lies. And then there was a pamphlet denouncing her for all these lies by Matisse and Brock. And they're like, this woman didn't know she was talking about. But the point stands. It's I turn my living room. I have a big space. Like when people come through, I did it for Kennedy. I, I did it for. Um, my buddy Jake Shields, who's an MA fighter, I'm like, all right, I'm having a get-together. I think it's a good idea where people who are making it happen should be in the same room and get to know each other. But are you opening it up?
0: Uh, Forgive me for interrupting you. Are you opening it up uh, for a meet-up for fans, or are you... No, no, no. No, okay, it's just for the people that you're inviting to that get-together. Yes, okay. a very
1: small... I, I keep the guest list small to be intimate. It's not a house party. Um, but I think... Uh, It's exciting, like you said with your kid, have all these people who are making it happen. First of all, you're in a space where you don't have to worry about who you're talking to, which is very important. Like, is this person going to smile and nod, then go on Twitter the next day or Substack and write a piece? Oh, I I, oh, I couldn't believe it. Blah, blah, blah. But also, you know, it Austin is the the downside of Austin. It's small. There isn't really like a go to place. So I'm like, why not make my house the go to place? Because so many people come through here. You know they're not going to have necessarily something to do. Let's just throw them a little get together. So it's it's been I've been very excited to be able to do this.
0: That's fantastic. Now, have you always been? If you go back to say when you were in high school, have you always been sort of the the central node, kind of connecting a whole bunch of people? Because uh, before you answer that. So one of the things that if if I may speak of myself I'm able to navigate in completely different social ecosystems right because I'm not, you know I I I have different facets of my personality so in my high school there was the Stoner Exit this is sure. where all the druggies kind of were there's the jock area well I you know the stoners thought I was cool even though I wasn't uh you know I never took drugs Uh, I was okay with the jocks because I was the star soccer players I was okay with the nerds because I was a very good student so I could be a social chameleon not in the sense that I'm faking who I am but in that there are facets of my personality that allow me to traverse all these different nodes is that something that describes you well and hence you're the connector uh, they call that Sigma male, right? Sigma, so right.
1: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the terms that's come out. And someone called me this once. I'd never heard the term before. But I, I, I'll, I'll, I was working on a book with DL Hughley, the comedian. Yeah. And he made some comment. I'm paraphrasing it. But something like about the quality of a man is how many rooms can he feel comfortable in?
0: Yes. Uh, you
1: know, and I've worked with him. You know, he's a black comedian. I'd be the one white guy at, at, the, at the club. I've been to North Korea. I could pass there. Uh, I do think there's something to be said that you know put yourselves in rooms that you're uncomfortable with I haven't been the connector I was quite the opposite so as a result of having a kind of Russian upbringing there is very much this sense of low-key paranoia and you want to keep people apart because (laughs) if you introduce them maybe they're gonna start plotting against you or you know or this person sees one aspect of you for example like if you're friends with the druggies and then you're friends with the religious people, if they meet each other, the druggies be like, well, God was just you know getting high with us, <laughs> then that, the jig is up, right? So you never know what's gonna upset yeah. one group. Yeah. But then as I became an adult and I became more of a name, and I'm like, wait a minute, I, I, I'm the same with all these people. There's nothing this group can tell another one about me that is not true or, or that would that would bother them. And if they're bothered, to hell with them anyway. So in, I did not have that opportunity in New York because I lived a little bit out of the way and my place wasn't big. But having this space here, I'm very excited to be that person.
0: What 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 led you to the career that you've had? I know you've had kind of a unique trajectory where not everything was planned out. Right? I mean, you didn't you didn't study to become an accountant and became an accountant or a physician or a lawyer. Right. And you right. It it, it kind of happened somewhat organically. You probably thought you know I'm a creative person. I want to do something cool. I'm going to write. I'm going to okay. I'm going to be a podcaster. But it, you know, is there kind of a a a a, a amorphous one, two, three recipe that someone wants to imitate the success of Michael Malice, how should I go about doing that if I'm watching the show?
1: I don't think there is at all. I I think it's very much a matter of you have to learn how to surf instead of driving. Because especially when you're young, you're gonna be ignorant. You don't know how, what my biggest concern when I graduated college was that I would not know how to speak corporate. Because I knew that there are these methods of communication in corporate America where you're saying things you're not really saying, or, you know, and that I wouldn't be, because you don't teach, I was a business major, but they didn't teach us this kind of uh, form of communication where it's very passive aggressive, and you say one thing and you mean another, and when you're young, you put your foot in your mouth because you're more forthright, and you don't realize, you know, when that person says, oh, that's not a good time for me, they're saying no, but they don't want to say no, because that's just the corporate way of doing it, right? So it was something I I, I was concerned about. but I think it's a, one mistake young people have is they think, you know, maybe they get this from the movies, you get one break, and if you, that break falls through, you're done for. That's not true. If you are a quality person, an ambitious person, and a competent person, you knock on enough doors, eventually one of them will open, even if that person is just dumb and takes you at face value and you, you've kind of tricked them. Uh, you know, you pass by their filter. So, I, I think a lot of it has to do with putting yourself out there and also accepting that you're going to have a lot, a lot of doors closed in your face.
0: You know, in my next book, the one that I'm about to submit to my publisher where I talk about Recipe for the Good Life, I have a whole chapter on, you know, anti-fragility and, you know, the yes. the, the power of failure, right? And, and so I start listing in that chapter in many different domains the rate of failure. So, for example, you know, the rate at which entrepreneurs fail before they become millionaires, the the rate at which restaurants fail. Uh, You know, for example, in academia, the rate of rejections in peer-reviewed papers is astronomical. And this applies whether you're the greatest academic or a nobody, right? Just the mere fact of having people judging your work in a very critical manner will result in, you know, many of the top journals... Uh, that I'm certainly aware of, you know, you have rejection rates of 95%. So, I mean, imagine you're engaging in an enterprise as an academic where, you know, from from the day that you first conceive of an idea, applying for a grant, you know, executing the research, writing up the paper, could be three, four, five years, and then you go through a peer review process that might be one, two years long, and then with the ultimate goal or, or the ultimate outcome being that that paper gets rejected and now you have to start over at another so just persistence and grit is you know maybe 90% of the battle
1: yeah i have at least three books that I've written that have not been published that are on my hard drive and a screenplay um and at the same time now on I'm I'm, a, I'm in a completely different position because the Anarchist Handbook which I put out last year it's a collection of essays that hit number 3 on Amazon like of all books so I Amazing. was Oprah and Barack Obama I don't have any even hypothesis how that happened <sighs> but the point is you know you go from one extreme to um another and and the advice I always give people and I think this is really probably the best advice I've ever I have to give uh, is if you want to be let's suppose you want to be a writer, right? Go to any bookstore, and look around at the shelves, and look at all those really shitty books. That could be you. You could be that <laughs> shitty writer right. where, your fr- where your friends are like, how does how do he get a book deal? This book's shit. But when you have it in those terms, instead of being the next you know Shakespeare or the next you know whoever Hemingway or whoever you, you admire. When you have it in things that are reasonable within reach, all of a sudden it doesn't become impossible. Then it becomes a matter of, okay, let me reverse engineer how this jackass whose book <laughs> is completely terrible, how he made it happen because surely I can do what he did.
0: But you, you agree with me that probably the top book in the last three years is White Fragility. Can we agree on that? The best. Oh, I, I sleep really under my pillow. <laughs> very good. So do I. Uh, I was very rude in not formally introducing you. So since you mentioned oh, one okay. of your books, let me mention the other ones and let's plug those in so that people can rush out and buy them. So first, you're the host of the widely popular You're Welcome, uh, misspelled on purpose. It, it's not misspelled. It's you, you, You're welcome? It's this yours? you welcome. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, well I, I apologize. And uh, titles can't be misspelled. They're formal nouns. They, uh, I stand corrected. Uh, and then we've it's got okay. English is both of our second language. <laughs> it's actually my fourth language. Oh, excuse uh, me. Uh, Arabic, my mother tongue. Then French. Then Hebrew for religious purposes. Then English when I first came to Canada from the Lebanese okay. Civil War. Uh, you've you've done uh, you've you've been a co-author on many books as a ghostwriter, cetera, So I won't mention those. Yeah. Although they're of course valuable and you worked hard on them. But the the ones that are sole authored. Dear reader, the unauthorized autobiography of Kim Young, uh, Young is it or Jung? How Jung we, Kim Jung, Jung, Jung Il. Il, and then the new Right, a journey to the fringe of American politics. And you mentioned earlier uh, the anarchist handbook, which is a collection of essays. Guys, go out and check these out. We actually talked when we met in Austin about the. The, uh, the two options of either self-publishing versus going through a you know a, a, an established uh, publishing house. Do you want to briefly talk about that for our aspiring uh, authors? Yeah, it's it's well, I
1: don't know about aspiring because I think if you are aspiring, it's going to be very hard to break a book out. Yeah. Uh, publishing is in a bad way. And most publishers will tell you. I think all publish, all mainstream publishers will tell you that unless you have a platform, unless meaning you have an established audience, the possibility of getting a book deal is very, very low. Yeah. People have this idea again from movies and television that if I have a great idea for a book or an amazing novel, you know, I can get an agent and I can get a, a contract. It's almost impossible. Yeah. Um. So it's if you're gonna if you want to be an author, the best advice I can give you is become a name. And then you're going to be able to be an author. Then they'll give you a contract. It's a very frustrating process. Uh, If and the thing is, if you self-publish, for every book you sell, you get six dollars. If you publish through a mainstream publisher, you get one dollar. At the same time, the mainstream publisher produces the book. They have an editor. They have a copy editor. Legal goes through it. Book designer and distribution. So that's things that and they give you credibility. Uh, if a book is self-published, the New York Times and other agencies will pretend it doesn't exist, which is fine. Uh, but that's somewhat changing. Uh, my book, Dear Reader, which I did from a Kickstarter, I had an hour on C-SPAN. I think I was the first one to wow. have that happen. So that th- those those walls are are coming down um, because it's it's harder and harder to pretend that a book which has a large audience, like because there's lots of authors like uh, I was saying, David Asprey. Who's like one of the first paleo guys like he's self-published technically but the book is huge and he's an innovator in his field so of of course people are gonna read it It doesn't make it less legitimate you know what i mean if if his technical knowledge is there um but at the same time you know the book i'm working on right now the white pill i just knock on wood finished the last difficult chapter last night so it's going to be all smooth sailing for the final third um if i dropped it today to, you know, in May of 2022 to a publisher, it would be out in May of 2023 at the earliest. Whereas with me, if I get this done next month, I could have it out in July or August.
0: And you yeah. don't care about the imprimatur of the high quality publisher in your case, so that so that already takes away that whole thing.
1: Exactly, that doesn't give me anything, and me personally doesn't give me any value. However, if you don't have a name, it will give you a lot of value. Yeah. That is something that is something that, that adds to your resume, it's just like a, it's, it's exactly the same as a college degree. Like I can have an audience and people listen to my ideas when I talk about. But if I wasn't, you know, Michael Malice figure, you know, if I have a Harvard credential, that's not nothing.
0: Yeah. Oh, you, you froze. Oh, I'm still. Can oh, you hear me? Yeah, now I can hear you. But okay. you, you're Apache. OK, let's keep going. What, Go ahead.
1: I was just I'll, to repeat what I just said. Sure. You know, if, if I if I had a Harvard credential, if I wasn't a name that still opens a lot of doors, that's not nothing
0: yeah very nice Uh, of all of the different hats that you wear uh, you know uh, author podcaster political commentator is there one that's closest to your heart you know this is the one that I'm most uh, naturally gifted at that I enjoy the most do you have that or do you enjoy the fact that you're wearing different hats and hence variety seeking
1: Um, I think the one that's most important to me is being an author because I think that's my legacy Like it's I I do enjoy being a pundit and running my mouth and people seem to enjoy watching me on these shows. And that's great. And that but that to me is somewhat more ephemeral, whereas a book, you know, and this is maybe my bookish nature. That's going to be on that shelf long after I've gone. So I think that that is something that is where I put the most energy into and I take the most pride in, even though it's probably the least. You know, like the amount of people who read my Twitter is what, like, four hundred thousand. If I'm on Rogan, it's going to be millions. I'm not selling four hundred thousand copies of my books, but it's it's still like something where I kind of have the most pride in.
0: You know, I so of course I also wear many many different hats. Uh, What I love about book writing, as opposed to say my academic writing, uh, you know, the academic writing has a a template where, you know, there is the introduction of the problem, there's the literature review, there is the, uh, you know, the, the hypotheses, methodology, data analysis, conclusion. So, the the details that I fill in will change depending on the research project, but the template is always the same in an academic paper, What I which is fine. I mean, that's okay. Uh, what I love about book writing is that, sure, I may start with a book prospectus. I mean, when I'm pitching the idea to my publisher, I have to have a clear idea of where I'm going but then there's so much that's organic right I mean you know here is a section that's seven pages long that I had absolutely no idea when I first pitched the the book idea with my book perspective that that was going to be there that came up you know synergistically organically through my process that I find very exciting because I don't know where I'm going when I'm writing a book in many cases Do do you feel the same way yes so this next
1: book I'm doing the white pill is completely Different from the original concept. The original concept was to basically apply Camus' absurdist philosophy to contemporary life and give people advice on kind of how to be happy in that context. And there's none of that in the final uh, uh, book. The final book is about the rise of the Soviet Union, the Western response, and its uh, defeat.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's a big left turn.
1: Yes, very much. So, it's completely a different book for that I started writing. And but that's an extreme case, I think.
0: Wow, amazing. Okay, let's uh, I guess I would be remiss given that you are Ukrainian American. It has to be that I ask you about your views of drumroll, Ukrainian war. Take it away. Anything you want to say, any analysis you want to offer. I don't know that I'm Ukrainian
1: American because for the simple reason we were always told growing up that we're Russian because we spoke Russian, we didn't speak Ukrainian, and my parents always told me that the Russians hated us a little less than <laughs> the Ukrainians did. Uh, but then, so I don't have any particular insight as to what's going on there. Uh, for the past two years, I was supposed to go back to Lvov, the city where I was born, uh, with my buddy Chris Williamson, who's a podcaster, and that hasn't happened because of COVID, and now, because of the war, that's not gonna happen again. Um, I, my thoughts are always, in any of these conflicts, with, with the civilians. Uh, and you know, I, I don't have any insight at all. Uh, I just want this to be. Res- I, I don't know what I didn't under, and I still don't understand Putin's endgame. Uh, my friend, it's because you don't in our kind of Pax Americana world, you don't get to invade another country, put up a puppet government, and then everyone else just shrugs their shoulders. And moves on. That's not a thing. You know, like Kuwait was a good example of this. And there's other examples. My friend, you know, uh, a good friend of mine goes, well, wait, that's not exactly true. He was probably gambling. You know, he does this blitzkrieg thing. He captures it quickly. The West huffs and puffs and puts sanctions. That's exactly and what
0: I would have predicted. Exactly. You write out
1: the sanctions. Yeah. Yeah. And then they kind of we had. Listen, we had a puppet government in Iraq. So it's kind of like you have this kind of Soviet, like Russian uh, friendly uh, installed government and everyone just pretends it's legitimate. I'm like, okay, that's, that is the only scenario that m- would make sense. Cause this guy, anyone who says Putin is stupid or crazy you, right away, you can kind of dismiss them because this guy is a, 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 at the very least a strategist. You don't navigate the halls of the KGB <laughs> yeah. without being a bit of a, you know, snake, that's pretty yeah. obvious. So it seems like he just basically majorly, uh, uh miscalculated. Um, or he thought, OK, I do enough damage that they're going to want to do some kind of stalemate. You know, I get some of it and, and you know, the rest goes away. So uh, I, I, I it seems to have kind of faded away from the news, uh, in yeah. fact, because it's hard to give a narrative now.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, well, you know, uh, I, I guess you, you know who Tucker Carlson is. I don't know. Have you been on his show?
1: Yes, sir.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, I went on Tucker Carlson, both on his t- you know television show and his, uh, you know, long form podcast. And at one point I had uh, posted just like a warm thank you. Thank you, Tucker, for hosting me. It was lovely for you to meet my family, blah, blah, blah. And then one of my cousins, with, you know, who was my closest friend, I'm going to come to Ukraine in a second uh who was uh my by far my closest friend and and a blood cousin i mean he was my cousin i went through the lebanese civil war with him at one point he was stuck at my house because the fighting was so severe that he couldn't even go home which was five minutes away so we have these really deep horrific personal experiences together he disowned me because uh i had said something nice about tucker that i had actually gone on his show you know really how low can you go have you no shame So that kind of shows you what happens to parasitized minds. That he can kind of uh, his his disdain for Tucker supersedes any affection, familial affection he might have had with me. And one of the so now I'm going to link it to Ukraine. I think one of the reasons why people hated him now. I mean, most recently they hate him for all sorts of reasons. Is because he's arguing, at least as I understand it on his show, look, it's horrible what's happening in Ukraine, but is it the job of the United States to be, you know, engaging, you know, giving that much treasury to that cause when there are so many uh, domestic problems that we should first be, I mean, at least let's have a conversation about that. How much of our money should be going, you know, for other folks versus taking care of our land? What are your thoughts on that? Does that strike you as sinister and he's cold hearted or does it, does it seem to you as a rational statement to make?
1: That That's historically been the, uh, the Monroe doctrine and <laughs> yeah. things like this and $40 billion is a amount of money. I'm, I'm kind of interested in, I mean, why it, it's, why is Tucker Carlson now the straw that broke? And I use this word advisedly, the Campbell's back because <laughs> I mean, going Rogan, you know, platforms white supremacists and is responsible for genocide with, Because he told everyone to eat horse paste. You know, you've done many other experiences over the past. Why is it a problem now?
0: I I think one of the arguments that I'm seeing, I try to abide by Joe's wise advice to not read comments. But you know how we are. We're we're drawn to the accident on the side of the road. So we keep looking. And so once in a while I look at the comments, I think the idea is... He is a white nationalist who is promulgating. Of course, I don't agree with this, but he, is, course, yeah. he, he is promulgating the great replacement uh, you know, narrative. And therefore, by someone with your imprimatur and prestige, Gatsad, and you're a Jew, you're a Jew from the Middle East, you are granting him uh, you know, coverage for his uh, you know, execrable uh, positions. I think that's the general argument.
1: But you're the replacement. <laughs> like we're the replacement, right? Like right. that. They were chanting in Charlottesville, "Jews will not replace us." So, right. like, like if Tucker is platforming you, that shows he's not believing in
0: this idea. Yeah, exactly. But but you know, uh, using logic to falsify hysteria is is is, is a form of uh, you know bigotry. So please tr- stop using logic. Uh, I mean, did this not disturb you enormously when he what, the cousin? It? Yes. Oh, it, it really. Well, you know, I wasn't surprised in the sense that there I've had attention with this guy for he, he is the classic stereotype of the ultra progressive Jew what does that mean he escaped Lebanon under similar threats to me but he's the strongest supporter of Islam because you know Arabic speaking Jews who grew up in the Middle East wouldn't know really what true so you know his wife is a she was an expert, I think, in Sharia financing. She is from Texas, but she learned fluent Arabic. So he's an is, he's Islamophilic. So he yeah, is yeah. The, the perfect stereotype of the ultra-progressive Jew who is haughty about, you know, those tribal sads. So for, for him, uh, we were kind of the, the Jews of color, whereas he's haughtier. He sees uh, beyond, you know, Islam is a dangerous religion. So I'm not surprised that he holds those views. I am surprised that he would take me on publicly because... Oh, this is public? This is... Oh, you can still go now and, you know, you can do a search or I can send you the... uh, If he still has it. Like the tweet was, without any punctuation, by the way. He doesn't believe, I guess, in punctuation. Uh, Really how low can you go have you no shame or something to that effect. I I wish you said you think Tucker Carlson's bad. I've been on Michael Malice's show. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so many horrible guys. Exactly. So I thought, but that shows you what happens to uh, when you become so tribal that your allegiance to your blood is superseded. So for example, I've always known that he just despises the Republicans. He despises Donald Trump in a, way, in a way that is so hysterical, in the way that I typically satirize. I mean, literally, Donald Trump was going to usher a nuclear holocaust. He's going to tank the economy. We're going to have to use like a barter system because there's going to be no more currency. That's if, if Donald Trump comes to power. Not unlike another Jew, Sam Harris. So he is, if you want, the Lebanese version of Sam Harris. So it did upset me, but I wasn't surprised by it.
1: You know, but I think there's something else that here, and I'm surprised you're not looking at it from this vector, because I think there's a strong evolutionary psychology position here, which is uh, people like him really have what Thomas Sowell calls the vision of the anointed, exactly. which is I am here to be the savior. I've been enlightened as to the mysteries of how life works. And it's my job to proselytize and promulgate this profound morality that my lessers don't understand. So the fact that you have a much higher status and stature than him which is what a lot of this behavior is ultimately exactly. about seeking, has to, on a very fundamental level, because you're from the same house, really drive him crazy. It would be very easy to be like, okay, someone has come from privilege. They're more successful than me. I understand. You and him are the same blood. Exactly. There's no excuse why you're up here. <laughs> you're on Tucker Carlson, and he's jerking off on Twitter. Exactly. So that really is, I think, the Oh, that's, that's
0: a beautiful, beautiful explanation. I like it a lot. Uh, since you you meant you just use kind of a, the spicy language of you know jerking off and so on, is that okay? Of course, of course. Okay. say whatever you want, don't worry about it. But I, I, I was gonna talk about this later, but since there's a nice segue, let's do it now. So of course. One of the things that I think people love about you is that you 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 know you do have a very spicy style, and you know some of the things that you use, even by my standards, and I'm hardly pur- puritanical, but you know I might read one of those, and, okay, crack up laughing, but you go, yeah, that's a bit rough. I don't know if I would say that. Uh, so yes, even you've turned God sad into a prude. Uh, but do you ever put out that tweet and then say? Uh, yeah, I think I went over. I, I regret it. I should have modulated better. Or you put it out and you never look back.
1: There was uh, there's one that I'll, I'll reveal here for the first time. Go. OK, which is when and I'll say why I deleted it. Uh, and and, and this will actually be germane to you, which just recently happened. Sarah Sanders was the White House press secretary under President Trump. She had gone to a restaurant called like the Red Rob. I forget what it was called, And they kicked her out right because she worked for trump administration i had tweeted out in their defense the last time she ate there they ran out of food and i deleted it (laughs) because she's she's big because she's fat i'm like i'm not going after fat people i have friends who are fat you know when you make a joke about you know when they make jokes about trump and putin having sex it's like you're making jokes about all gay people so if you think this is something to mock uh, that means you're mocking all your gay friends who are going to see this. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, wait, I've got friends who are overweight. I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I don't want them to think that I'm laughing at them behind their back or judging them. So I and, and sh- I think she doesn't deserve that. So I, that was an example of something I deleted.
0: Okay, well, that, that's, that shows humility. I mean, we all sometimes push that send button too quickly. I usually never like – I mean, I, I don't go as overboard as you do, but I never usually back down and stuff because I actually don't think that there is a reason for me – you know, I take a position and I stand by it and I'm willing to defend it. But in your case, it's a stylistic issue, right? It's, it's a fact that you're – did, did, did you call someone uh, – did you call a person of color, a professor of color, Elizabeth Warren, you called her a dick, right, or something like that?
1: Yeah, so that's something that they think the feminists get right. Okay. Like I don't – When if I'm going after a woman, I won't call her like a bitch or like some vulgar term for women. I will always use a term for men. So a woman I'll call a dickhead. And a man, I'll call a bitch, because I think gendered language is something that I think there's something to be said about avoiding insults that way. And also, when you mix it up, it's a little confusing. And when things are confusing, the
0: mind gets stimulated. <laughs> do you ever get? Are your? If I may ask, are your parents a lot still alive? Yes. Uh, do they ever send you a text and say, "Son, come on, stop this. This is unbecoming of you. We didn't raise you this way." Or are they? My God, you're a funny guy, and we always knew you'd be a.
1: I, I don't think people appreciate how much ruthlessness and throat cutting is part and parcel of the Russian culture. Right. So there's never been any – like my grandma would be like, oh, if the kids in school kill themselves, too bad Weeding are out the week. So that's the <laughs> mindset where I come from. Yeah, It's very cold-blooded and ruthless. And the thing is it's very much – don't start fights but finish them
0: right so
1: it, i i it, like if people people see me being aggressive on twitter it, the vast majority of the time it's me counter yeah or exactly going after someone who's going after somebody else
0: exactly uh i'll talk about that in a second because i have a similar reflex where you know it takes a while to kind of get me going but then once i Unleash the God wrath, then yeah. it's no hold barred because you're insulting me for the past six days, and so I completely agree with you there uh, regarding the ruthlessness. Uh, you know, I come, as you know, from the Middle East, Lebanese Jews. It's certainly very ruthless, and there, there are some really unique uh, elements to parenting in that culture, which I I, I wonder. i I'd love your opinion if it's if it's shared in your family. So, for example, one is the idea. That you know, and it's with an Arabic twist like that. You know, I never compliment my son directly. I will speak about how great he is to others, but I will never. And you're like, but why can't you say a nice thing to me to my face? I mean, wouldn't it be nice to receive a wonderful word from your parents? But in a sense, they view it as it's breeding weakness for me to tell you how lovely or great or successful. I, I, I will, I will have an ode to you, to my, to my sister. With whom I engage in a competition to see which son is greater than the other, but I will never tell you to your to your face. Do do you have something similar in your Yeah, in your that's
1: part? one of the reasons I don't talk to my dad. I haven't talked to him since twenty ten. Wow, um, it's, it's I think it's really uh, duplicitous, and, yeah. and 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 I think it's kind of despicable. It is very much part of Russian culture, um, where you never say a, I rem- a kind word to your kids, and that's. And there was a point where it's like, why am I getting more support from strangers for my accomplishment than my own flesh and blood? And then it becomes, why am I seeking the approval of someone from whom I'll never get and who I don't really respect? So I think that's real. Did that do a number on you growing up? I think that's a
0: a huge number. And I've never I've never uh, discussed this publicly, but I will take the opportunity to do so now. A, A huge number, not in that it has damaged me, but rather given my unique set of genes, it has emboldened me to then shove it up your ass, right? You know, yeah. you know, you know the expression: uh, uh, "The best revenge is a life well lived," or something to that effect. So, the the stressors that I faced in my parental environment did not destroy me; they caused me to truly be anti-fragile. Now, in the deep recesses of my mind, do I regret that my parents? Uh, you know, we're not different on some of these dimensions, 100%. When I look at my own children and I see how I honor them, by the way, not that I'm this weak, you know, everybody deserves it, but I honor them, right? I I am ecstatic when they succeed. Uh, When they play well, I mean, I used to be a very competitive soccer player. Uh, Seeing them flourish doesn't diminish me. I'm their biggest fan. They know it. I'm very demonstrative in my affection towards them and can be very rough if, yeah. if If you commit a, a, a transgression, uh, so yes, it has done a number on me in that it hurts, but I've overcome it, I think
1: yeah, but I, I just think it's it's just inherently dishonest, yeah and and I, and I think it's it's needless and it, it, you, I, I think it's this really false dichotomy where it's like, listen, if you praise your kid when he does something great that doesn't mean participation trophies. Right. It's like, oh, you know what, you, you got an A in this test, let's go get ice cream, good for you, I know it was hard. Do, and keep it up, because right. if you get a B, you know you could say both, if right. you get a B next time, you're gonna be in real trouble, you know, don't let this, this doesn't mean you're off the hook. Yeah. But you could still be like, in this moment you did something I'm proud of, good, you deserve to be rewarded for it. Do you,
0: do you think that uh, the, the, the reality that you faced with your dad stems largely from that Cultural ecosystem, or is it the unique combination that constitutes his personhood? He doesn't have the uh, the generosity of spirit to to give you what it is that you would have needed from a dad.
1: I have spent far too much time trying to answer that question without coming to any conclusion. Right. And my conclusion was at the at the end of the day, due to use a horrible expression. I don't care uh, if you're just doing the wrong thing toward your kids and you're told this is the wrong thing and there's no self, um, self-examination or concern, I, I, I'm not going to try to reverse-engineer you. I can only do so much to meet you halfway.
0: Do you think... And forgive me, I don't... You, you tell me if I'm getting uh, uh, too personal and we'll get no, off the top. you're th- fine, you're fine. Okay. Uh, tomorrow, he, he watched the show, although I won't be posting it for a while. Uh, he watches the show... <laughs> but he, there's no
1: possibility of that, come on. I'm <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> there, there's an epiphany he has... Uh, You know, you've really tugged at his whatever something happened. He's getting older. He's getting closer to his God forbid the you know death and he reaches out to you and says I screwed up. I want to apologize. I want to reset at zero. Would you have the generosity of spirit of saying yes, dad, let's do this or are you so burnt that there is no possibility for that bridge?
1: Well, I I talk about this in my biography Ego and Hubris which came out in 2006. It's a graphic novel that was written about me Mm -hmm. by Harvey Pekar. And I've tried because it'd be like, look, when you did this, you know, a while ago, this really bothered me. This was a big issue. And it's like, who cares? It, like the quote, the answer is literally, who cares? Get over it. Yeah. And it's like, but I'm telling you, I'm not over it. This is a big problem. It's like, okay, fine. I'm sorry, but you're not sorry. It just means shut up and leave me alone. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I, 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 if someone, and I'm very like this with all my relationships, friends or relatives or whatever, or what have you, coworkers, if someone says, look, I feel one of the reasons I always try to do the right thing is not because I'm some kind of exemplary moral saint. It's because guilt to me is an emotion that's really crippling.
0: Yeah, if yeah.
1: I did the wrong thing and I've done the wrong thing several times, and it's kind of funny because there are two cases I'm thinking of where I kind of said the wrong thing to someone and, it, and I'm like, you know, they didn't deserve that. And then years later, I brought up and apologized. They, they, both the cases, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking. I like, I don't remember this at all. Uh, and, yeah. and meanwhile, it
0: was torturing you for years.
1: That's- but like, kind of, yeah, like yeah. I think about it. Be like, yeah. you know, that really sucks. And yeah. they'd be like, I don't remember you saying this at all. Um, but that's, I think, the main reason I always try to do the right thing because guilt is a. And if someone says who I, someone who I respect, says to me, you know, this really kind of messed me up. Even if I didn't, if I, if I completely disagreed, I'd at least have the conversation and try as best I can why they so they could understand why I did what I did. And at the very least, we could have some kind of consensus that going forward, what work I'm not gonna maybe, in this instance, I can't, in extreme, I can't change my behavior, but what work workarounds can we agree on to make sure this situation doesn't happen in, in the future?
0: Well, I can tell you this, uh, and again, this is probably the first time I ever share this in the public sphere, uh, but I, I appreciate uh, you sharing some of these personal things, so let me reciprocate here. Uh, I've had family members who who've done who've committed transgression on me that I thought had kind of uh you know broke the camel's uh, back uh, and so I was hurt and wasn't willing to you know overlook it and all it would have required from those family members is a genuinely felt apology and contriteness and then I would have had the generosity of spirit to say oh, it's forgotten. Thank you for saying it. Let's hug it out. But those people had such a devastating manifestation of malignant narcissism that they were willing to forego a relationship with me rather than ever demeaning themselves by apologizing. And I mean, that's literally true. And I uh, just out of respect for them, although maybe they're not deserving of the, this respect. I, I won't mention who it is specifically, but but it, it literally is. I will either never speak to this person again, this is from their perspective, or because I don't want to apologize, or I just find the generosity of spirit to say, you know, I get it, I sucked what I did to you, I truly apologize, please forgive me, is there anything I could do to redeem myself? And then just hearing those words would be enough they never did and we haven't spoken for many, many years. Not because I'm playing chicken with them, not because I'm trying to be, but because I was so uh, hurt by that thing that I that, that's where I kind of drew the line and they said, okay, this asshole doesn't exist. Fuck him. I'll never apologize. It's, it's, I, it's
1: tragic. I also think it's very true that when you apologize, you apologize for yourself. You don't apologize to mend a relationship. You apologize because you feel guilty. You did the wrong thing and you're like, you don't have to accept my apology, but it's important for me to tell you that I know I did the wrong thing, and I really regret this, and this makes me think worse of myself as a person. So all all I can do is say I'm sorry and explain my thought process so you can understand why I did what I did and why I now know I wouldn't do the same thing
0: going forward in the future. So that's, the to me, an apology is a very selfish thing. Well, I mean, by the way, to draw an analogy, there are many programs where someone has been the victim of a violent crime, or let's say that their son was killed by some killer who's now in prison, and then you, you go see, at, at, you know, I know the the word, you know, closure is, is overused, but you really are looking for that psychological closure where you want to meet the gentleman who killed your child and truly hear them say, I'm sorry, I take responsibility. It, it's, just, it's just an emotional, I mean, a, a human need To have someone who's done you wrong apologize. But that, by the way, I link it to. So if you look at the seven deadly sins, Michael, the the soup, do you know what the supra sin from which all other sins flow from? Do you know what that is? They call it pride. Exactly. Now, now pride is very much in, you know, pride in English could mean positive or negative, right? Whereas in French, if, uh, the 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 distinction between the negative and positive has different words so in french fierté is the positive pr- uh, pride i'm i'm proud of my work pride in the negative sense in french is orgueil right it's like for example when you're not humble enough in love yeah. to right so you are you are prideful in the negative sense now the reason why Pride is the root of all, you know, uh, the deadly sins is because the idea is that if you're so imbued with self-love that you can't love God or morality, then you will succumb to all these other earthly sinful, you know, pulls. And this is what's happening here, whether it be with your dad or with some of the people in my family. They are so prideful that they feel that it is a fatal blow. It diminishes them faithfully to apologize to this younger kid. And therefore, I will never apologize to you. I will die and not apologize to you. It is so tragic because it is so unnecessary, Michael. And what if you won? But you know, it's interesting what you were
1: speaking with the prisoners. I know after the, the uh, troubles ended with Britain and Ireland in uh, the UK, rather, uh, I don't know the exact circumstances. But my understanding is several of these IRA people who had been in jail for bombs, you know, were as part of the agreement they got to get out. And I know there was one story where like the IRA, whether you call him a freedom fighter or a terrorist, I guess depends on, you know, your perspective. He met with the family of, you know, the the son who he blew up. And his point was, look, this was a war. This was not personal. Like, I have nothing against your son. And those parents did. I think they even had a relationship with a guy. They did have some semblance of closure because it's a lot easier to understand instead of talking to some frothing at the mouth lunatic why this happened. It's like, here's my thought process. And if I could wave a magic wand and bring your son back, in a, I would wave it so fast my wrist would break. You know, this, yeah. So I, I think – but that is, I think, a case when you're dealing with people with some level of intellect a lot of these people who are killers are literally basically on an animal level and talking to them might in effect, God, I listen, I don't, I don't know anyone who has, whose son was killed in this circumstance, but that might even make it worse where you're like, my son was sacrificed for this animal right. you know, who's now in a cage. That, I don't know if that would bring someone much comfort.
0: Right. I had a guy on my show since we're talking about prison and I, I actually tell his story in, in my next book when I'm talking about sort of uh, how you know, to live the optimal life Uh, He spent 29 years in prison for a murder that eventually he was exonerated uh, of having committed it. And as I was talking to him, Michael, he had this kind of Buddha, Buddha Buddha-esque quality of being so even keeled and he didn't seem to have any rancor or vengefulness. And I was as I was talking to him on this is you can you can catch this uh, on my channel uh, as I was talking to him, I said, you know, you, you you definitely are a better man than I am because if I had experienced uh, 29 years someone stealing of my freedom, no. I would be so vengeful, I would probably have died of the poison in my body because you know, I want to burn the whole world. And so I use that as an example of really, truly this kind of Christian concept, which at times is kind of overactivated of forgiveness. But in a sense, had he not been this forgiving, he probably would have drowned in his... You know vengefulness. You know who else can be described as Buddha-esque? Hmm. Sarah Sanders.
1: <laughs>
0: oh no! And in the, in the oh now I got it now I mean, it. Took you a see, second. Look at you! You 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 take it out, but then you go back to it. Th- that see that's the scorpion that can't but sting the damn frog. We can't change your nature, Michael Malice. Uh, Tell me quickly. We have. Wait, a, can I, Yeah, can go, I go, get go. No, we're when not. We're
1: not in, go ahead. When I was in North Korea, I told my guide the story of the, the the frog and the scorpion, and she didn't know what a scorpion was. And I thought, okay, maybe she's another word. I'm drawing it for her. I'm explaining it. She had never heard of a scorpion. Now, if you sit down and think about how many ways you know what a scorpion is from TV shows pet stores, blah, blah, blah. So that was just one, I'm sorry to kind of sidetrack it, but that was one specific example of the power of a totalitarian state where things where you and I learned about this at age four, and it's just that because there's none in Korea, you don't need to know about it, where certain other things, you know, she could talk all day long. It was just a very fascinating moment.
0: How did you... I mean, since you you mentioned it, I mean, we, we talked about the the book earlier, or at least the title. What? How did that connection happen that you ended up in North Korea? I mean, what, what's the story? What's the backstory here?
1: Um, it was legal to go. A friend of mine, Ed, you know, who traveled like I think to like a hundred countries now, something crazy. I saw his photos in Pyongyang on Facebook. I'm like, what is going on? And he goes, Yeah, yeah, it's legal to go. I met the guy, Burning Man, who's in charge of doing this. Uh, so that was the first time I had some like real coin in my pocket. So I'm like, okay. This is the only chance I'm going to get to see what my family went through like 100 years ago or so under Stalin uh, and Lenin to see kind of this kind of totalitarian communist state. Um, and I I was like, all right, maybe I'll you know, do a book out of this. If not, it'll still be a fascinating experience, uh, which it absolutely was.
0: Did Have you ever spoken on your show to the North Korean defector? Very beautiful North Korean woman. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yanmi Park. So, for the Anarchist Handbook, which is a collection
1: of essays by prominent uh, anarchists, um, she, the audiobook, each chapter is read by a different person. So, there was a chapter on uh, anarchist communism, and she reads that chapter. Oh. And I had to guide her through it because the language was very dated and kind of formal. Uh, so it was a lot of work editing it. But if you go to anarchistaudiobook.com, you can hear her be that chapter.
0: Oh, cool. Because I we, we connected recently and she's uh, supposed to be coming on my show. So I'm really looking forward to that. How was it? To, I mean, it seems kind of like an ultra sterile environment, kind of like the Soviet Union, kind of brutalist architecture. No tree. It, 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 am I getting the right sense of how that place looks like? Or is it just the images that I've seen in Western media?
1: Um, it's not sterile because there's mildew everywhere, Um, (laughs) but that's the thing. Everywhere you look, something is wrong. Every wall has a crack. The elevator will have one mismatched button. The carpet will have a stain. The urine will be rusted out. So the idea Westerners have that everything's like pitch perfect is completely wrong. Wherever you go, you're going to see something wrong. Uh, It's it's inevitable. There's always a smell everywhere, like this basement smell. Um, It is... The the part that's the most crazy is it's I, – I say – I wrote an article about it. It's like going to another planet back in time. The part that's the craziest is not having any awareness of the outside world nor ability to get information. So you really are in this fog where each – I was only there for a week, but each day flows into the next. You have no idea what's going on. Anywhere
0: else, it, it's, it, there's not there's no other way to replicate that. Well, are were you able to just go sit at a restaurant and no, some, no, no 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 So
1: every you're they take your phone at the airport, right? Every aspect of your day is provided for you, which is less ominous than it sounds. Because if I went on a guided tour of Montreal, I, you know we're going to wake up, we're going to get breakfast, then we go to the museum, then we go to the club. That's nothing ominous about that. So there's no opportunity for that at all. Um, and what I did is they took us to a couple of towns. You know, I know. You know, coming from a Russian household, yeah. people think of Americans we're loud and obnoxious, uh, especially the North Koreans. The Asians certainly think Americans are loud and obnoxious, and I certainly am. So wherever I was on the street, I got in people's faces and waved <laughs> because I knew their reaction would be genuine because they'd be, you know, yeah. they'd be surprised. It's not something to interact with. So it, it's um, if communism would work if people were robots. But the fact is the grandmas would smile over their grandkids and the teenage boys would roll their eyes in their tracksuits while they're chewing their gum and the girls would you know cover their mouths and giggle and the men would wave and the women would nod so the humanity is so pervasive there which makes it infinitely more tragic they actually have not turned these people into robots they're really have good senses of humor and are far more normal than you'd expect
0: well, it, I mean, basically, it shows a point that, of course, I make in my evolutionary psychology research that, yes, culture can, you know, move you. And the, in the kind of, I'm, I'm going to butcher E.O. Wilson, the famous Harvard biologist, says, you know, the genes hold culture on the leash. The leash might be yeah, very yeah. long, but right. So, so this is basically what you're saying. Yes, there could be a unique cultural ecosystem here that really is trying to eradicate the your humanity. But these biological imperatives that have that are vestiges of a long evolutionary process no amount of dictatorship is going to eradicate that
1: yeah yeah so it's it's and it's it's heartbreaking to see especially knowing that
0: every single person i met when i was there is still there amazing Do you, uh, given what you've written in that book would you be able to go back or are there criticisms there that would render it impossible for you to ever go back and visit there
1: they only go after their own so since i'm an american i'm already basically a dog an animal they'll they'll still take my american dollars it's illegal now for americans to go but yanmi is the one who's in danger because she's a traitor yeah so she's the one who they'd want to kill but like westerners we're just
0: spreading lies about them anyway so who cares amazing okay let's uh two two more quick questions then we can wrap it up uh number one earlier i meant i asked you hey do you regret ever posting something spicy and so it's now become a tradition to ask a more general question on regret, not just about your tweets, but so. And here let me contextualize it. Uh, one of my former professors of psychology at uh, when I was doing my PhD, his name is Thomas Gilovich. He pioneered the, psycho- the study of the psychology of regret, and specifically, he drew a distinction between two types of regret regret due to action, I, you know, I regret that I cheated on my wife, and this resulted in the dissolution of my marriage, versus regret due to inaction. You know, I went and became a physician because my dad and granddad were physicians, but in reality, I want to be a an artist, and, and I regret that I never instantiated my love for art. And it turns out that over the long term, uh, the, the most looming regret that most of us have is one of inaction, right? The, and so, of course, you can imagine how I talk about that in my forthcoming book when i'm talking about living the good life so if i ask you now you're still a a young man in terms of your lifespan uh, to to look back at your greatest regrets what would they be michael
1: uh probably my biggest regret was going to bucknell my university i'd never been around white people before it was an all-white country club school it was completely uh it was just a horrible experience uh there was just a complete lack of intellectual curiosity uh it, it was the most everyone's basic basically uh, so coming from brooklyn that was a big culture shock and and very disorienting for four years so i would say that was my biggest but problem.
0: why Be, you because you regretted the fact that you wasted those four years because your tuition was wasted what what i mean you still somehow got enriched by it no
1: well i mean i could have had that somewhere else i just okay. think it, it was a very I, I had a free ride so that that, that was an issue but i think it was just uh, too emotionally difficult needlessly. I didn't, I got the point of the emotional difficulty after like a couple of months. So I think that would be probably my biggest regret. I, I don't mean- have, I, I don't think this metric is, I hate people. Like I have no regrets, I, but I, I've made mistakes, but those are uh, learning opportunities. And, yeah. and for me, it's very exciting. I don't know exciting, but you know, there's people who are uh, friends of mine who I kind of mentor younger kids and it's great because you know, when you're 21, you don't have the data. To make these decisions, and and now at my advanced age, I can be like, no, 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 this is the answer. So I have the opportunity to save them from having to suss it out, which they have the mental capacity to do. They just don't have the experience. So there, there's something to be said for the, for when you make the mistake, you learn something in the sense, oh, this is how it works, and now I won't make the mistake in the future.
0: Well, listen, if 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 going to Bucknell is the first top of mind uh, regret that you have, I think you've lived a pretty successful life, sir. So.
1: Go yeah, I, I, I'm happy pretty much all the time I'm thriving you know, I, I get to write books on whatever I want I have a big audience I get to be a complete douchebag on Twitter with only positive repercussions this, this is my job me sitting here and talking to you and I think it's very clear I'm not kissing your ass but anyone watching this sees I'm having a good time and so are you yeah. so if this is work for me I mean, how bad can my life be?
0: So, what, what a wonderful way to to view life and to, to exhibit, uh, you know, gratitude to 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 the cosmos that led you to be here. I'm
1: very very blessed. Yes.
0: Uh, last question: What are some projects that you're working on that people may not know of that you'd like to maybe use this platform to promote? Um,
1: nothing. I mean, my next book is going to be the White Pill, and and I'll I'm I'm sure you'll be very happy to read it. I'll be on talk to you about it when that finally drops that'd be great uh, because it's going to hit very close to home for both of us Um, and yeah they can follow me on on Twitter or uh, my YouTube is Michael Malice official
0: and they can watch my
1: podcast there
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Hey, stay on the line so we can say goodbye offline. Such a pleasure to talk to you, Michael. And I look forward to hopefully spending more time with you in Austin. And if you come to Montreal, I know you came once before, but I I was in the throes of the parasitic mind. So next time you're in town, dinner's on me. Thank you so much, Michael. Absolutely. Cheers. Take care. Hi, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed my chat with uh, Michael Malice. If you'd like to support my show, you can do so in one of several ways. You can Head off to my Patreon account, my Subscribe Star account, or my PayPal account to uh, provide a donation in support of the show. You can head off to uh, my YouTube channel underneath uh, the clip that you just listened to. There is a heart icon where you can donate, you can share my clip, you can uh, like it, you can post comments. There are many, many ways by which you could support the show. I hope that you will do so and uh, do spread the message about the show. Thank you so much for your viewership. Take care.